0: Hello, internet friends, and welcome back to Love-Hate Relationship. I am your host, Andy Bowell
1: And I'm Alex Ruiz, and we're here to brighten your day, anger your soul, and tell you how to live your life, in that order.
0: That's right. <sighs>
1: uh, Andy, it's been a minute uh, that obviously anyone listening to this isn't going to really get that because it's been a couple weeks since they heard from us, but you and I haven't done one of these in a hot minute, so uh, you want to... You want to say to people what you've been doing in this interim period that they've never experienced?
0: <laughs> yeah, so uh, I was lucky enough to uh, be able to spend uh, a week off in Canada and, and take mm. a, a, a very wonderful vacation that I very much enjoyed. Um, and you know, we're going to get into a little bit, but I, I, I think I've said this already in the podcast before. I love the mountains. So to be able to just be up in a place that I am surrounded by them and you can look any direction you look and you see a broken skyline uh, just really puts me in a good zone. And it was very peaceful and very uh, enlightening and an altogether absolutely wonderful trip.
1: Nice. I consider it a tremendous irony that like you love mountains so much, but I'm the one who lives in friggin' Asheville, right? Like, and, and you know, I I like the mountains. I I didn't care for them a ton until I moved here and started like hiking. But I mean, they're fun. They're nice. Uh, I'm not the most naturey guy, but like, it is funny to me that you're in Florida, which is you know, uh, yeah, it's it's asphalt and wetland. And, and I'm up here surrounded by this gorgeous skyline that I just want to rub in your face sometimes. So oh, yeah, like, yeah. It's a delight.
0: Trust me, I uh, I spend quite some time uh, contemplating how jealous I am of where you are and where you live.
1: Oh, well, <laughs> I, I, I'd like to say I hope it doesn't keep you up at night. But, you know, I it's nice to know you're thinking of me, even if it's keeping you up late at night.
0: I often think about you late at night, Alex. That is, I know my, you do. That is, that is my do. confession. <laughs> I know you do. Oh, sweet boy. All right, Sometimes so.
1: Oh, <laughs> uh, okay. So, please continue.
0: Let's go. Let's go ahead and and dive right into it. Um, my love, this week is not the mountains. I think that would be. Uh, pretty vague, even for us, and I don't know if our listeners would be into a geological discussion of tectonics and and stuff that physically makes the mountains. But my love, Andrew, this when week, have we ever
1: done anything for our listeners? That's a good like,
0: point. <laughs> yeah,
1: we love you all, but like this is for us, not for you.
0: My love this week is my happy place, which happens to, uh, involve the mountains.
1: Okay. Sexy.
0: Please yeah. continue. Uh, well, so, you know, I've actually, uh, I just want to kind of explain that I actually have two happy places because it, it, if you think about it, there's a little bit of a misconception about what, I could be talking about. There are some people who think that the happy place is not somewhere you've actually been, but somewhere that you create within yourself. I guess I'm lucky enough is the way I would phrase it to actually have a physical, uh, place. That is my quote unquote happy place. Mm -hmm. Um, so, um, I've got two and both of them, the, the, the through line is the fact that there are the mountains. So I'm going to paint a little picture to you because you can actually find both of these on Google Maps. Um, One of my happy places is on a beach behind the resort in uh, Pono Kai Resort in Kauai, which is one of the Hawaiian islands. And um, I can recall the last time I was there, uh, like seven years ago at this point, um... Mm -hmm. Walking out behind the resort, sitting on a hill, uh, taking a beer from my dad and cracking it and watching the sunset behind a mountain that was across the bay. And that is just something I hold in my mind's eye and can remember it perfectly. And it's amazing. The other one is uh, up in the Canadian Rockies, where I just was lucky enough to spend a week in uh, Canmore, Alberta, which is right close to Banff National Park. For anybody who's familiar with that part,
1: wait, 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 wait! It's called Banff
0: National Park. B A N F F, Banff National Park. Yes.
1: Okay, so it's not B A M F. All
0: right. No, no, it's not the badass motherfucker park. <laughs> I I would go to that park. I'm sorry, I would, but
1: it's the one that said "bad motherfucker."
0: Okay, I'm I sorry, go... I interrupted you. Again. I would go Please, to that continue. park. No, that's fine. That's fine. I was just I was just uh, you know setting the scene. If anybody's curious, Justin, if you're listening, I think you're the one who would know where I'm talking about better than anyone else in the world. But it is Justin outside. Better be listening. Yeah, right. It is outside the Grizzly Paw Brewery, which is my favorite brewery in the whole entire world. Uh, in Canmore, Alberta, and you're just looking up out at peaks and and and, and these beautiful painted on snowy in the middle of June mountain tops and it's so good I love it I love it so much um so those are those are my happy places um, and I guess I guess beer and mountains are the two uh two similar ingredients but we're we're not going to focus on beer um i want to focus on the na- the mountains and the nature of a happy place in general so okay
1: so, go ahead so uh, if if you're done yeah okay cool so uh, i'm really curious here because you So you said you don't want to talk about like mountains in a general capacity because they feel very general, but you instead want to dive into this idea of, you know, a person's individual happy place. Yes. Uh, All right. So you name these two places. One is in Hawaii. One is in Canada. Yep. Um, So when you call them your happy place, and, and it's very clear that they're dear to you, that they're very deeply set like there are memories and aesthetics that are clearly imprinted in your head uh when you're not physically uh, i think it's obvious if you're physically in those places the, the psychological benefit that you're experiencing from it what are they to you when you're not physically there
0: okay yeah so when they're not when i'm not physically there in these places um what they are to me is they are a, a source of a, a, a calming influence. And if I am feeling stressed or unhappy or even just uh, kind of feeling that neutralness that uh, mundane everyday life can, can cause one to feel... Um, These are things that I can draw from in my own mind to use as sort of a, a little endorphin shot or, uh, you know, a, a, a stress relief or just something that I can, I can think back on and reflect on and feel happier. It's, it's, Honestly, one of the things I wanted to talk about, because in most pop culture, a quote unquote, happy place is something that someone usually escapes to, to take their mind out of a traumatic situation. You can do this. And again,
1: just, just go to your happy place.
0: Um, and I don't think that it necessarily needs to be something so dramatic and so drastic. Uh, it can be just a a positive thing that you are able to hold on to and draw from and get a good feeling by. I like that
1: thought, um, and you're absolutely right. I feel like in pop culture, the line "go to your happy place" like I feel like it's used more as like a punchline than anything else. Someone's Someone's freaking out. Someone else is trying to calm them down. And they're like, go to your happy place. Go to your happy place. And it's just all going wrong. It's yeah. And it's almost and, and it is. I mean, it's not a bad source of comedy. I'm not going to lie. Um, I'm trying to think back to like the. Are, are you familiar with the concept of grounding in uh, mental health work?
0: Um, maybe. And I don't know. It was called that. Go ahead and, and give me the definition and I'll tell you.
1: Sure. So like the short version of it, is, and this is, pardon me to anyone who uh, works in mental health, who studies it, who is far more educated on this than I am, because I, I, again, I've been to counselors. I know some counselors. I've done a little reading. I'm no, by no means an expert. So all apologies. Uh, grounding, uh, as it's been taught to me, is, frequent, is a frequently used tool uh, by counselors and therapists for Clients who are experiencing anything ranging from trauma recovery to uh, consistent triggers to anxiety, panic attacks—a uh, whole wide spectrum. But it's a it's a way of getting them to a calm mental place. Now, sometimes that is uh, giving them a sensory experience or telling them to remember a place of comfort, a physical memory and try and pull themselves there to, quote-unquote, ground them out of that experience. Remember who you are. You are my son and the one true king. So that's kind of a really dirty, not, not super detailed, but comprehensible definition for grounding. And it sounds like that's sort of in the ballpark of what you're talking about.
0: Yeah, I think you're right, and I I didn't know that that was the definition of grounding, but I definitely agree that sort of in my own way I am doing that to myself whenever I whenever I go to my happy place. Yeah. Hmm. Um. So I'm I'm always fascinated by psychological aspects or sociological things um, that don't make a lot of sense. And I'm always wondering about what from an evolutionary standpoint, uh, made this happen. What, what in human evolution led to people being able to create a happy place or, um, put favoritism on one snapshot in their mind over anything else. Uh, and i want to i want to ask you some questions and and see if together we can figure some things out i have a feeling it. that my happy places because they involve the mountains uh specifically uh are very nostalgia based um because for anyone who uh doesn't remember the first episode or, or just didn't know this about me. I grew up in Colorado and spent my entire childhood there. I spent my entire childhood up in the mountains and you know, because it's my childhood, it it was a simpler, happier, uh, less stressful time for me. And I really just kind of cross-examining myself, wonder how much that has to do with me feeling comfort in the mountains and feeling and feeling happiness there so uh you my friend grew up in hoboken
1: uh so i was born in hoboken Hoboken. but i actually i grew up in orlando
0: okay that's right that's like
1: that yeah like my my parents house which is just down the road from your parents house i grew up in that house from age five onward oh okay
0: yeah. Okay, so that, that doesn't uh, break the little the, the questionnaire I've got here because you, no matter where, you're, you're now living in a different place than where you grew up. So I, I want you to think a little bit uh, about what your happy place is and, and tell me about that.
1: Sure. So um, I, I did think about this when you sent this along, and it's funny because it actually aligns fairly closely to a conversation my wife and I were having uh, like a week or two ago, and it's very funny because for me, I don't commonly think of places as my happy places, so to speak. Um, you know, I didn't, I did not have an unhappy childhood. I, I won't pretend that I did. Sure, but I spent a lot of my childhood. Kind of dreaming and thinking about other places I want to be. Uh, you know this. I talked when I was in Orlando. I talked constantly about how much I wanted to get the hell out of Orlando. Like I was you very do. Bored. Yeah, and I was I was very bored by suburbs. I I wanted, and I a lot of this comes down to my big romantic notions and being kind of a pissant teenager. Uh, <laughs> but that's it's just the truth. But it's funny because um, I'm trying to remember what the conversation was, but I think we were talking about. Um, I think Stephanie was asking me what like Saturday mornings meant to me or Mm, Sunday mornings meant to me. Um, because I, have recently developed a habit of on the weekends, I will, I will make a breakfast that is kind of similar to the kind of breakfast that my, uh, mother would make for me on Saturdays or Sundays, which is arepas, which is, you know, very traditional, uh, Colombian food along with whatever else we were throwing together. And I started making that and. You know she loves it and all of that, but um, it's funny because when I think when I think like okay, what's my what's my happy Sunday morning thing? What grounds me? What puts me in that place? And funny enough, it's less about like location. I think about my father's music. Okay. My like I immediately th- those childhood feelings of like. Of like that more innocent, happier, more carefree time for me. I hear that when I hear, when I put on some of certain Pandora stations that I've curated. And yes, folks, I still use Pandora. Um, I worked hard on these stations, damn it. <laughs> uh, but I've got stations I've been working, I've been I've built 10 years ago that are perfect and I love them. But, you know, it's when, it's when a lot of those old, that old music that my dad would put on in the mornings. Buscando. When I hear that, that's what transports me back there. It's a very auditory experience for me. And then a lot of what I'm cooking has the same smells as a lot of the stuff my mother was cooking there. You know, So even though I was in a house that I spent a lot of the time thinking, I can't wait to get out of here. I can't wait to go have an adventure someplace else. I'm so bored by this. My "quote-unquote" happy place has less to do with that place than it does with those sensory experiences.
0: That's re- okay. So that is really interesting because I think it's fair to say you're still your your happy place is still um, nostalgia-driven.
1: In that regard, yeah, I, I would probably say so.
0: So that 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 really interests me, um, and I would love to questionnaire some of our friends or listeners if, if they are uh, willing to volunteer this information as to what their happy place is and I, I want to see how many people um, draw back on their own experiences as opposed to uh, what I really have seen in my research a lot of people try to uh, say that it is something that you create and it is not a memory you draw from but it is a an experience that you come up with um that's so.
1: that's fair i i would be curious to know if to because for a lot of a lot of us i mean there's a lot of nostalgia theory especially nowadays a lot of people talking about this because it nostalgia kind of seems to have uh, a named stranglehold on culture right now mm. that i don't know that it's new but it's definitely more analyzed than it ever has been and I forget who it was. Um, this might have even just been someone on Twitter, but I feel like I've heard the thesis going around that nostalgia kind of comes from a sense of either discomfort or unhappiness with where you are currently. It makes sense. Uh, yeah, that, that people who are content and happy with where they are, the way things are now, are less likely to be get nostalgic. Um, I don't know how much truth there is to that. It, it makes a lot of sense to me, especially because I can think to things that have made me feel nostalgic, you know? No. I, I remember that when I first got, like, I would had Amazon Prime for a couple of years before they added, like, the Prime video. And I just decided, what the hell, let me skim around on this. And when I came across episodes of Batman the Animated Series... the old 90s Batman, which at that time, this was years ago, like nowadays we don't think twice about this, this was right when they started offering Amazon Video, this was might have been 10 years ago, 8, or eight, 9, 10 years ago,
0: okay.
1: um, I remember finding Batman the Animated Series and starting to watch it and just kind of being like, oh my god, this <laughs> is amazing, this is stupefyingly good, and it took me back to being a kid in a lot of those ways. Um, I don't know that I necessarily have the same reaction to it now or or a lot of that material now because I I do think that I am in a happier place at this point and I'm more enamored by new shit. Like, I actively am engaged with newer media, newer stuff that's coming out and I, I feel like, Nowadays, I'm more excited by newer stuff than I was years ago when I was sitting here going, man, hip hop ain't what it used to be. (laughs) Like now everyone's everyone just is a swag rapper and I can't stand them. Oh, man, these cartoons are B.S. I remember when my cartoons were great, like I don't have that as much anymore. And I feel less of a need to go back to that nostalgia driven stuff. Likewise. I don't know that I need my, quote-unquote, happy place as much as I would have gone to it previously.
0: No, yeah, and I, I think it does. Um, you know, there's a lot there that I agree with. Uh, in in uh, I'm not super familiar with the nostalgia theory, but what you have uh, just told me about it, it makes a lot of sense. We were speaking earlier about how, you know, stereotypically the happy place is a, a defense mechanism against emotional trauma. Um, And comparing that to the idea that if you are more nostalgic, you are maybe uh, less, happy or satisfied with where you are right now that isn't that just a sort of low grade emotional trauma um yeah so i can can see that yeah i can totally uh connect some dots uh and see that uh you know i was trying to think about it like i'm thinking about like old music i'm thinking about the first i'm thinking about how i discovered queen in high school uh, and to listen to Queen now, it's not it, it, it's not that I'm sitting there going, man, you know in, in, in the 80s, Freddie had it figured it out and, and I, I wish I could have been there at that time. When I listen to Queen, um, you know, I'm thinking about uh, high school or I'm thinking about you know just just what a sublime artist he is but you know i'm i'm thinking about when i discovered it when in my timeline did i discover this thing and then compare that against like the biggest band that i recently discovered is dance Gavin and dance and they're a post-hardcore uh slightly screamo but at the same time funky kind of band and i absolutely love them um you know it's not that It's that I keep discovering new stuff. No matter how old it actually is, it's still new to me. Um, Mm -hmm. And I I take equal amounts of pleasure out of the two things because of that. But no, it's interesting. Like, find me a millennial that doesn't have at least some... uh, some some low-key depression or some some unhappiness find me find me anybody under the age of 30 who is like at least doesn't experience some level of discomfort with our political climate or just 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 their day to day, you know i I don't run in the same circles with those people, so it's hard for me to ask them but i I am equally curious as you are you know does the twenty two year old trust fund baby who is never going to want for anything in his life uh, feel nostalgic and here's the thing okay, go yeah go 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 ahead i
1: like I know. Okay, taking that example like just that one the the trust fund kid grew up with all they have all the money they're ever gonna need uh I have met a handful of those uh you know i I went to a very you know ritzy private undergraduate university uh that was filled with those kids and it's interesting because let let's set aside the uh, very important and and noteworthy and worthwhile uh, debate of if you're at a certain level of privilege, uh, your your woes can't properly be compared to someone who is struggling to survive. Let's set that that argument has so much weight and it deserves to be had, but let's set it aside for the purposes of this conversation. Okay. In terms of actual psychological stress. Those folks have plenty of it. It's been my experience that a lot of the people who carry uh, economic privilege come with certain expectations that can be very, very psychologically trying to meet. You know, Um, it happens and it's just how do I put this? If you have a hypothetical rich kid whose parents have told him his entire life that he needs to go to Yale or he's a failure and you compare that to a kid who came up with economic anxiety and it's you need to make yourself solvent to survive. Both of those people Will carry psychological stress. Absolutely, we can debate how we can debate how much psychological stress. We can debate the merits of it, and all of that is validly up for debate. Anyone who says there is no psychological pain that the privileged endure and are writing that off is not interested in having a very nuanced conversation. I, I will put that out front. So. Yeah. You know, your, your hypothetical person who's coming from a lot of privilege, yeah, I would say they're they're absolutely suffering something. If you're living and paying attention, you're suffering something.
0: Right, yeah. The point I was going to make um, was, you know, I, I didn't mean to um, set up this idea that money equals happiness, and I was going to presuppose that I'm, I'm sure that kid does have a happy place, and it's probably when he was, you know, Actually, I'm not going to dig myself a hole of making an assumption of, uh, of what that would look like. But it pro- the happy place of the rich kid probably has something to do with a emotional uh, support and, and good memory in that way. So I completely agree. Yeah.
1: And I mean, it's very funny because I th- if you were to ask me this question half of my life ago, I'm, I'm 28 now. You asked me this question when I'm 14. And you go, hey, Alex, what's your happy place? I'm going to tell you my happy place is sitting in my bedroom with my headphones in, you know, listening to Slayer. Yeah. And that is a current... That, that to me, at that time, would have been a very current place. It's, it's exactly where I constantly wanted to be. It comforted me. It, it, it put me in a happy place. Uh, quite literally. Sure. Um, and in that sense, it's a present tense spot. And... I'm not sitting here during a bad day when I'm 14 going, man, I, I'm not thinking, man, I remember when I was listening to Slayer last night, I'm thinking everything sucks. I'm going to go listen to Slayer tonight. <laughs> like, sure. And, and that's, yeah. And I mean, the idea that we all kind of need some place to mentally escape to, you, you mentioned earlier that you were interested in like an evolutionary explanation for this of some kind. Try to find evolutionary reasons for psychological phenomena is, I think, one of the hardest things. Yeah,
0: that's why I like it so
1: much. Yeah, well, I mean, think about it. Evolutionary biology and psychology are both very, very different sciences. And there are people who are definitely putting in the work to kind of theorize in both of those spheres. The thing is, we're such an odd animal at this point because... Think about how much our society has shifted, you know, in the last ten thousand years. Sure. You know, uh, the and and again, the psychological stresses that come with that that come to a person whose life expectancy is half of what ours is, whose physical day to day is consumed with making sure your children survive with making sure you have enough to eat that you have water to drink that you're advancing in some capacity is very different from someone today who is putting just as much psychological energy into things that comparatively seem trivial
0: yeah yeah i agree you know it's in a way, you know, we we can sit here and talk about how awful modern day is, but I think it's important to remember in just about every way we are living in the apex of of human life and it has never been as good or as easy in certain ways than it has right now. So it's almost a testament to mankind I, I I'm, I'm, it's a testament to something well I'm trying to say you know we're better we're better than we were even 60 years ago sure uh, yeah
1: I, I would not argue with that uh, I'll I'll say that you know 60 70 80 years ago uh, I would not be allowed to walk into certain businesses right period I just wouldn't Now, if that happens, uh, at least I can sue. (laughs) Uh, We'll see what happens when it gets to the Supreme Court. But, you know, what it...
0: mm, Right.
1: But so... Ripped from the headlines. (laughs) Uh, But no, I'm with you in that regard. Um, To me, the idea that someone would have a psychological drive, maybe even an evolutionary drive to just... Find a. Co- it sounds like we're talking about coping mechanisms. I think so. More than anything yeah, else. a psychological coping mechanism. And the fact of the matter is, life is stressful. It's stressful for everybody. I think it's Christopher Titus who had a line uh, in a special where he said, "You're supposed to worry about how the rent gets paid because that's how the fucking rent
0: gets paid." <laughs> yeah, it sounds like uh, Titus. Yeah, and I mean that's
1: that's true. I, I mean, and, and he was saying that in the context of. We over-medicate, We try to escape our problems. It's and and that's problematic. And we're not facing you know the dark realities that our day to day life encounter. And there's an argument to be had with that. And and it's it's a delightful argument. I think it's a very valid one. But um, I think it's true. Like this this world will stress you out like Orson Wells on the radio. Like yeah. that's an LP line. Yeah. yeah. But uh, yeah, it, it just. It's a str- it's stressful, again, to live and to be paying attention. We all need coping mechanisms. It's why you can't go on woke Twitter and not have people talking about self-care. Yeah. And, you know, you can criticize particular types of self-care or escapism. You can, but the fact of the matter is everyone needs it to some degree. If for you that's I need to mentally escape to my happy place, whether that is... A geographical memory or, you know, an auditory experience like it is for me, whether that's Slayer or, you know, my dad's old Latin jazz records, uh, I think that that's valid. You know? I agree. And And
0: anybody who tries to, uh, you know, shit on that or shit on anybody's place, um, I will fight them till the ends of the earth
1: so so that listeners you heard it right here andy has officially challenged anyone who open, disagrees throw with us to a fight.
0: open throw down open throw down you
1: and me behind the denny's the, you would fight people behind the denny's like, that's <laughs> you just... no i wouldn't <laughs> oh i'm sorry are you fighting people behind the perkins no I'm fighting people that's fancy fighting. fighting andy, fighting
0: people behind the steak and shake <laughs>
1: that's a fair compromise okay so i think we've uh figured out the psychological details of happy places any final thoughts on the subject before we move on andrew uh
0: no i I was very happy to walk down this road with you and have this discussion and uh the thesis paper will be published shortly
1: okay cool you can find that on pubmed and or tumblr Uh, all
0: right moving on
1: okay okay so uh, my turn yep. now and folks my hate for this episode uh, is for to summarize it succinctly it's the very concept of tortured artists uh, I hate the idea of the tortured okay. artist so uh, Andy Andy as I like to do um, do me a favor I'm going to say the phrase, like, when I say the phrase tortured artist, give me a couple of examples that, like, come to mind to you as an educated member of the zeitgeist. Okay. Who are tortured artists?
0: Um, Edgar Allan Poe. Okay. Um, Vincent Van Gogh. You know, to, to, to draw okay. back into history, those are those are some of the older examples I can think of. Um,
1: okay, drank himself into a ditch, mailed an ear to a former lover. Yep, Go yep, on.
0: Yep. Um, spe- Give me speaking, one more. trying not to pull from any of the ones you were talking about. Shut up and
1: pull it. Shut up and
0: pull okay, it. Okay, Kurt Gobain. <laughs> okay, great.
1: I I kind of love that. That's that is fantastic. I think those are great examples. I, I think they really are. I think that in in this culture that likes to romanticize suffering the way that they do, we take narratives like Poe, Van Gogh, Cobain. I don't know if you meant for those O sounds all the way through. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah, no. Um, yeah, you know, I, I I think a lot about um, Robin Williams. Sure. Personally,
0: uh,
1: yeah. Um, Jim Morrison. Definitely. um, I'm a huge Doors fan. Oh, of course. um, uh, Yeah, so uh, this idea of the tortured artist is something that bothers me a lot as a creative um, because I see it constantly put forward that to be an artist, to be a good, meaningful artist who does worthwhile work whatever that vague, numinous term means, that you have to suffer in these really, really profound ways. Yeah. And, and that you have to lead this tragic life. And that might sound dramatic. I know it sounds dramatic coming out of my mouth. But the, the thing is, like, I hang out with creatives. I have gone to school with creatives. I have so many... Some, some of the dearest people in my life... Are creatives in multiple genres. I know artists. I know musicians. I know tons and tons and tons of writers. Um, I know film people, actors, and this stereotype goes really, really deep. And we and we romanticize it. Someone dies. Um, as of this recording, uh, Anthony Bourdain recently passed right. away uh, via suicide. Uh, which is tremendously tragic. Uh, I I won't pretend that I was a huge fan of his, although I've seen plenty of his quotes and I would see interviews with him on various shows, and I always enjoyed him, what I did see of him. Uh, So, And, you know, a lot of people I know have come out and talked about how his writing and his work has really influenced their lives. Uh, In a moment like that, and we saw this a lot with Robin Williams too, uh, especially when it comes to these suicides, People will romanticize this notion of how a person has psychologically suffered and act as though their work is somehow uh, made more valuable by the fact that it was involving suffering
0: yeah i wasn't uh, I, I wasn't it's not like I disagreed with you, but I hadn't fully bought in to this hatred until that sentence came out of your mouth and my skin literally crawled, um, to, to say, oh, he killed himself, what a what an artist, fuck that.
1: Yeah, and, and, and okay, so I'm going to jump ahead in my own argument a little bit, but the thing that, the thing that offends me, like, that's, that is, let's set aside for a second that that's a deceptively romantic notion. The thing that offends me on a very, very, deep level when it comes to this issue is there is that when people take the idea of a tortured artist and they go oh they were so good because they were so tortured it removes everything that they did to be incredible at their art all of the work that they put in you'd mentioned okay so you mentioned edgar Allan poe earlier yeah Edgar Allan Poe was a drunk who uh, everyone in his life that he loved either died or left him, led a very legitimately very tragic life. But nobody wants to talk about the fact that the man deeply studied the English canon to the point where he could recite uh, 18th century and 17th century poets by memory and could dissect their lines in such a deep manner no one wants to talk about the fact that cobain who we talk about as a lyricist slaved over the music over the melodies of everything he wrote filled in the lines afterward trying to make sure that even if his words didn't line up perfectly that the sound of the words he wrote he wrote sonically He took he took concepts done by folks like rem and john lennon and the pixies and melded them into these beautiful soundscapes of lyrics jim morrison learned french so that he could read arthur rambeau and so that it would help influence his writing but we don't talk about that we talk about the fact that they had addictions and that they had depression and that they suffered like they didn't work their asses off. We talk about how Ernest Hemingway, you know, was drunk off his ass constantly, but we don't talk about the fact that no matter how drunk he was the night before, he woke up at six a.m. every morning so that he could write for six to eight hours.
0: Yeah, right. It, it. I mean, it, it. It just. It sets up such a bizarre uh, dynamic to to act like pain equals genius and to, to yeah. look at someone's work after the fact and say if they had lived a happier life they wouldn't be able to do that it it perverts the underdog story in a way that i don't like and it it sets up this this just this this disagreeable notion that really infests everything. I think about not even, not even people who quote unquote made it, but I think about all the uh, theater majors I went to college with, uh, you know, sitting in a hallway at UCF and uh, trading sob stories about, you know, working uh, a shitty wait, wait staff position uh, for, a double shift, and then going to rehearsal, or or going to an audition, or whatever, or uh, even the people who are uh, they're they're in a they're in a play and they're rehearsing themselves to the bone and working these insane hours. But hey, that's art. Um, yeah, and just treating that yeah. like it's normal. Yeah, and, and the thing
1: is, like, I don't mind. I don't mind hustle. I don't mind the idea that you know if you're a creative, you know sometimes it's hard, especially nowadays if you're a creative, to make a living while you're doing this stuff um, we grew up on rent, yeah. you and yeah. I did um, yeah and and I love rent in a lot of ways uh, in some ways it hasn't aged very well, for instance, holy shit Benny's about to <laughs> give these people an apartment that's worth probably a million and a half dollars in today's money. I'll forgo your rent and on paper guarantee. And he's willing to do it for free and they're like, fuck you, we're artists. And I'm kind of sitting here the bombs. going,
0: eh? Just kick him out.
1: I, I just, yeah. I'm, <laughs> that's besides the, oh my God. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, take that show and it, it romanticizes the poverty associated with the yeah. art. That's, that's not quite as bad as romanticizing, like, something I encountered a lot in graduate school was, and for those who um, don't don't know this about me, uh, or you missed previous episodes where I mentioned this, um, so I got a master's in creative writing. I got specifically an arts degree for writers. And a number of people that I went to graduate school with uh, would... Get bombastically wasted on a frequent basis, and literally say to me, like, or say to people around them, "That's just what writers do." Yeah, you know. And 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 I knew other people who were writers, and they would say, like, "Okay, I need to go." Uh, I I get Alex that you read a ton and study the craft and i'm trying to do that too but also i feel like i need to live life and have adventures and that to me is valid because that's you know living an experience so that you can have a wellspring of interesting information to draw from but there are people who equate getting getting shit faced or being destructive or treating other people like shit especially people of uh, especially like romantic interests or sexual interests and just generally being a complete dick and treating it like it's going to make them hunter s thompson or david foster wallace as though those people didn't destroy themselves despite the fact that they were good artists they weren't good artists because they were self-destructive they were good artists and they happened to be self-destructive
0: yeah i mean you know for as much as Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas is a book about doing all the drugs known to man and what a night like that is like, it's it's not like Hunter S. Thompson couldn't have done that work and many other works if he had stopped earlier, you know? Yeah, and I mean, and,
1: and that's the problem. You know, it, how many people talk about how much better John Coltrane's music was when he when he was on heroin you know yeah, people say right. that I think that was a joke in an episode of Family Guy when they're like oh you love Coltrane I love Coltrane too what's your favorite part of Coltrane before he was off the junk like and and, and people say that but Coltrane wh- whether or not you think that he, the music was better when he was high okay that's, that's subjective. Coltrane got more musically diverse and became a better player when he got sober. That's anyone who anyone who has even an inkling of how instruments work and listens to those comparatively can tell the difference between those two things. And and I, and I don't I don't want this to become the like podcast episode where I shit on people with addictions or say that you know drugs make people terrible artists. I, I'd. It's not about that. It's about this idea that you have to be fucked up in some capacity to be a good artist. That, that the only right. reason Robin Williams was funny was because he was depressed and needed to make other people laugh compulsively so that he could silence the demons in his ear. It's not the fact that he was incredibly talented, that he was Juilliard trained and, you know, worked his ass off writing and performing every night, seven nights a week for years in order to hone his craft. It's not an interesting narrative, so people pretend it's not real.
0: Right, and it, this idea that you have to get close to the fire and be burned so that you can shine the light in your work, it it really... i am I'm trying to find... I'm trying to think in my mind who is the equally successful and yet not tortured, not not uh, traumatic um, entertainment figure we can point to here.
1: I mean, I can name a few people who I think were I think are very fantastic artists who just plain don't have this same degree of bullshit. Like, okay, so one of my favorite. One of my favorite artists, and like just bands in general, is Matchbox Twenty. She said it's cold outside and she has people, people can laugh at that if they want. <laughs> Matchbox Twenty never. There's no narrative about Matchbox Twenty that says that they suffered horribly through self-destructive, torturous behavior. Yes. Rob Thomas's mother died when he was young, and he wrote about it a lot. Okay, that's 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 good artistry. That's taking your own pain in that way. Rob Thomas is not tortured over that fact. Yeah, he just writes really great songs about the things that he has to say. To me, that's perfectly valid. Um, I think about Ray Bradbury. You know, Ray Bradbury's was is one of the people that a lot of people point to as you know, he was one of the he he was kind of one of the golden children of this period of time when writers could really uh, get by on their writing; they could make livings as artists, yeah. as writers. Um, he's kind of like one of the last hurrahs of that period of time. But you know, Ray Bradbury sat at a desk for six to eight hours a day and just wrote, which is
0: boring.
1: <laughs> It's really. That's the thing. That's the thing that no one, that creatives don't seem to want to admit, and that consumers don't seem to want to hear. Being a good creative is really boring a lot of the time. It's sitting there and it's writing. It's slaving over a scene in your book. It's belaboring a chord progression. It's it's looking in. It's looking at your scene partner and reciting the same line. 60 different times trying to find exactly the right cadence and delivery method and gesture. And this is what really great artists do. And
0: it's boring. Yeah, it's work. you uh, you circled yeah. back to a point I was uh, working over in my head and, you know, as we're, we're both creative people. So, uh, you know, this is the, the, the harsh, ugly truth and, and boo on us for, for for putting this hypothesis out there but i wonder how much of this uh tortured starving artist romanticism came about from uh you know bo bohemian modern day bohemians not modern day uh back in the day bohemians who uh you know an, an acting troupe that didn't have more than a couple of pennies to their name and they couldn't afford uh a house but they could afford to go get some booze and so we're going to go get the booze and you know salude let's let's talk this up like it's a big better thing because we can't get the other thing and how much of it is how how much of this romanticism was just literally our situation sucks. Let's let's just start saying that it doesn't. Marketing is
1: a factor too. That's the other side of it. Um, I think it was Nikki Six, who uh, kind of like heyday of Motley Crue, said that the worst thing that could possibly happen to Motley Crue is if anyone caught us drinking a glass. Yeah, of milk. right. Like you, you want to hear the stories of like Nikki Six and Ozzy Osbourne on a deck of a pool snorting ants and lapping right. piss because they're just on so much cocaine.
0: Right.
1: You want to hear those stories. You don't want to hear. You, you don't want to hear about how Vince Neil says that he has to be in bed by like ten o'clock at night every night before a show because he's a singer and he loses his voice if he doesn't. You don't want to hear that story. You want to hear about him partying and drinking an entire bottle of Jack, uh, uh, a whole bottle of Jack Daniels and whiling out with Lemmy Kilmeister. You don't want to
0: hear about how Peter, Peter Chris quit Kiss because he didn't want to be doing this at 30 anymore. You want to hear about uh, Keith Moon, uh, you know, dying of alcohol poisoning
1: and throwing a TV set out of a window. Like, yeah. And, and. And the industry plays into that, and and I get it. They are exciting stories. I'll never pretend they're not. Like we know these stories for a reason. The only the only reason I know that thing about Vince Neil and and going to bed early is because I'm a nerd. <laughs> like the average Motley Crue fan doesn't care about that. And that, but but what is Motley Crue? Motley Crue is the definitive archetype of the hard partying band. Yeah. Every every stereotypical like spinal tappy type of moment, everything that's half of what spinal tap was parodying was either black Sabbath or Motley Crue straight up. And, and, and we want those stories. We don't, we don't want the other ones.
0: Yeah. So, so so there's, there's another avenue I want to talk briefly about here. Um, You know, in, in, in my discussion about nostalgia and everything, we, we were talking a bit about how, you know, money, fame, wealth does not necessarily equal happiness. And you know, we're we're talking about Anthony Bourdain, talking about Robin Williams, talking about Kate Spade. These these people, Ooh, Kate these Spade. people who had it all, and it wasn't enough. And that's a pretty simplistic way to say it. But you know, what it got me thinking about is these tortured artists, these people that made it and then died and their lives were so hard and, and, and that's so amazing. And that's part of why they were so good. Um, mental illness sucks, yo mental illness sucks. And everybody we're finding out pretty much. Everybody has some, issue or another and it it, it's there's no there's no cure that you can just go ahead and obtain there's no tv show with your name in the title there's no fat there's no empire of entertainment or industry you can create for yourself um why are we going to sit here and celebrate Morrison or anybody any, anybody who's already passed? Why are we going to sit there and celebrate some of them and point at these other things and talk about the tragedy?
1: I I don't know what the solution is because dramatic stories are dramatic stories, and we love dramatic stories. But to me, I, inc- I implore anyone out there who who really, really loves an artist of some kind, or multiple artists, uh, and buys heavily into their suffering narratives, I'm not going to ask you to ignore their suffering narratives. I'm not going to ask you to change your mind about that or stop consuming the art. What I would ask you to do is take that artist, take that very tortured artist, and look into them a little bit deeper. Try to find some interviews or some books or just some... Or, or some even secondhand accounts of their lives and try and find out a little bit more about their craft. Try and find out about their influences. Try and find out about the things that mattered to them outside of this suffering. Because I, I, I don't think these, these suffering narratives aren't giving you what you might think they are giving you, at least not in full. I think you will find a much deeper connection to these artists by delving into the art from that angle and at the very least you'll have a fuller picture and it'll be less tempting to just aggrandize this narrative of torture that ultimately like is kind of condescending and simplistic and makes and makes talented children of
0: them. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Absolutely, cool. man. All right, so uh, moving on to our final segment, uh, I got our relationship question, and Andy, I I apologize for this. I apologize to this for this in the notes, but this came to me via Instagram, and anyone who's on my Instagram knows that it's basically just like music and weightlifters. What? So this is a very weightlifter centric question. Uh, I don't hate, but I'm I'm hoping we can help this uh, this person out. So
0: I think so. Do you want to read, or shall uh, I? i'll read it okay
1: it came to me so hi guys first off you can call me gary as in gary oak from pokemon because he's awesome and no one's ever gonna convince me otherwise i'm gary oak the best pokemon trainer in palette fair enough second off i need help with ending a relationship i don't think we've ever gotten one like this i don't think
0: so this might be the first well no yeah yeah i think this is the first one
1: sweet okay to give context, I'm a weightlifter. About a year into my training, I'm not serious to the point of making any big national competitions or anything, but I like to think I can be competitive at some point. Not long into starting, I hooked up with a guy in my area, let's call him Ash, uh, who was also in, yes, who was also interested in the sport, and we started training together. We don't have actual coaches or anything but we've kind of been pushing each other along for a while. My problem is that he's kind of a jackass a lot of the time. He can get aggressive, loves to yell when he lifts, slams weights down, claps chalk everywhere without cleaning up, and sometimes says really inappropriate stuff really loudly. It's not an everyday thing, but maybe half of the time, he just gets so hyped up that he'll scream at me not to be a pussy or call me a faggot when I miss a lift. We train in a public gym, and when he gets this way, I find myself hiding my eyes or wanting to apologize to the other people there. He also tells me that he'd be totally fine if I did the same to him, that it would motivate him, but I'm not really comfortable with it at all. I know that I need to just stop working with him, so we don't need to address that. Uh, I probably should have done that after the first time or two, but I didn't feel comfortable calling him out on it then. Still kind of don't. I'm a little worried about how he'll take it, like he'll think it's out of the blue since I've never mentioned it before. I don't like confrontation, especially with really aggressive, unstable people, so any advice for how to approach this would be appreciated. Thanks.
0: So first You want to start, all, Andy? Yeah, yeah. So so first of all, blue. Call him Gary. He has to be called Gary. <laughs> fine, 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 fine. I apologize, Gary. The best Pokémon trainer in Palette! I'm glad that you recognize you need to stop working with him. Um, And I just want to point out, I don't know how much of this was me going out on a limb or how much was vague writing. When I first read this question, it took until uh, very much towards the end for me to not realize that this person was in a relate is not in a relationship with the person in question. Cause they said hooked up. Well, yeah, hooked up and, and something else. Uh, I, I guess I, I took our own relationship word too literally. Um, but so I, w- I was sitting here being like, okay, I'm with you. I've, uh, cool, work out with your boyfriend, oh oh, he should not be calling you that, if that's the case Um, Mm -hmm. anyway I am very non-confrontational myself and my wife is incredibly non-confrontational and uh, not too recently she had to do a very hard thing and completely surgically cut somebody out of her life who was a negative toxic influence but had also been a very close friend up until that point um and so uh, my advice is inspired based off of what she's done a bit in her own situation and the best way to avoid the conflict of not working out with him can be to literally avoid the conflict and to have a hard conversation with this guy, explain how his behavior is not okay because it's not okay. Um, nobody likes that guy at the gym. Um, you know, and, and, and this doesn't even have to be in person. This can be, this can be through a phone screen uh, which gives even more non-confrontation for you but you know you you collect your thoughts you figure out what you're going to say you make sure to tell this guy off and then if it's possible find another gym um, now about the only thing that doesn't solve is if you still want to be friends with this guy but not actually go work out with him that's that's my first take and alex i'll let you go ahead and go and i'll i'll reload here yeah no you're i'm i mean i'm with you on that front
1: uh i too was a little confused by the phrasing of hooked up with the guy but besides the point uh i will say if this is really tough because um you you don't say this outright you do say that you lift in a public gym so it's not like You know, you're going over to his place or he's going over to yours. You're just training partners who both kind of work out in the same place. If you can get out of that spot, I I know that can be difficult. I know a lot of places have like two-year contracts or they have you prepay for stuff. And I don't know if this is an actual weightlifting gym or like a Globo gym where you're paying like 30 bucks a month or something uh or if it's like an actual weightlifting weightlifting gym or a crossfit gym where you've invested hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars into this membership uh if that's the case i totally understand you not wanting to go with something like that um i will say i'm not a big fan of snitching but if this dude is making if he were just aggressive if he were just like raucous okay that'd be one thing but he's using really graphic, misogynistic language in a public place. Uh, that is, at a, And every gym, every single gym is a private institution. And I'm pretty sure that if you went to the owners and said, Hey, such and such has been calling me a homophobic slur loudly in front of other people who work out here, that'll probably at least be worth an admonishment, if not an outright getting thrown out. Gyms have rules. I don't know a single gym that doesn't. Uh, If that isn't the case, I mean, I think you do need to have the confrontation here. I think it's going to be uncomfortable. And I think it needs to be something along the lines of, you are not good for me the way yeah. that you behave does not jive with me uh i'm not aggressive like you i'm not comfortable with the way you talk i understand that you say that that works for you and that it's okay if i do it too the fact that you included that info makes me think that that's probably where his mindset is like oh it's fine if you call me a pussy like i will completely and in- i'll appreciate it if you do that to me because that's that totally works for me like I don't know how receptive he'll be to you saying, like, I'm not comfortable with this. Um, like, this is me yeah, anticipating if, something. If, but...
0: if he if he's calling you a faggot in a public gym, he's probably not going to take you showing a sensitive uh, disapproval of this behavior well.
1: Yeah. Um, if you're worried for your safety, uh, definitely, I mean, get back up with that. Like... And end this relationship through official means if you if if your' you know gym ownership is helpful with that if you have other people in that community or area or if you can get other gym goers on board if you're honestly worried that he'll have like some kind of physical reaction to you but you are absolutely right you need to end this relationship because the longer you wait the worse it's gonna get um, I understand why you didn't end it sooner but this is a confrontation that needs to happen. And the best thing to do is to make it quick, make it direct, block his number, uh, get out of his physical space. Yeah, because if you, if, it's not okay.
0: If you can't get out of the gym, maybe it's finding another day of the week to go instead of the day you know he, he's going. Um, <clears throat> but I absolutely think Alex is right here. Uh, it, it, you, you rip off the band aid. you formulate your thoughts, you talk to him about it. You can go ahead and apologize for it coming out of the blue. And I do, I do not think that that, uh, doesn't make your, your words any less important. You know, it, so what if you haven't talked about this before, it's still clearly a problem, Uh, It's not like you need to give him a couple of warnings before you can officially say, I don't want to be your workout partner anymore. You know, rereading your question. I don't get the vibe that you're close friends with this guy using the term. I hooked up with a guy in my area, um, denotes a unfamiliarity to me. And I would kind of lean into that fact. Um, if this is a guy you're that, 90% 90% of your interactions are working out and then uh, uh, whatever you do immediately after working out, whether it's going to get food or, or whatever, if that's all you're doing with this guy, then it, sh- it, it shouldn't be uh, as hard to cut him out as if this was a, a lifelong friend from down the street from you. And even if it is a lifelong friend from down the street with you, then I would go the other way and try to make it clear to this person that you can still be friends, but you do not appreciate the way he likes to work out. It is a distraction to say the least. It is a deterrent to your own, uh, efforts of physical improvement. Um, you know, there there are plenty of reasons you can come up with. Um, I think we've gone over most of them, but there are plenty of reasons you can give this guy as to why you don't want to work out with him anymore. And then it's just a matter of giving those reasons to him and making it clear that I don't want to hang out. I, I don't want to work out with you. We're... We're done. you got to find another workout partner. I'm sorry. And then get out of there um, physically or or not. Like Alex said, block the guy's number or don't respond to any immediate calls or texts. Do not give this guy an opportunity to engage and keep you in this situation that you've made it clear you don't want to be in anymore.
1: Yeah. No, that's exactly the case. I mean, a good training partner is worth their weight in gold. Uh, but they're, and, and and again, if, if you were the type of person who responded to this kind of thing, I'd be squeechy about the publicness of it all, but that would be that. This is not a good training partner for you. This is a toxic relationship. It's bad for you. It's going to be bad for your training. It's bad for the people around all of you. It's going to be bad for the environment of that gym. I imagine this probably doesn't make, if you're working out in the mornings, I don't think this is, you know, setting you off on the best path for the rest of your day. If you're working out in the evenings, I don't think it's the best way to end your evening, you know? Like, don't allow this kind of toxicity in here for you. This clearly is something that you care about, enjoy doing. And and this guy is just going to make you loathe the time that you're going to spend Pursuing something that you care about. Yeah. You can own that time. And it will involve a conflict. I'm sorry. I I honestly am. I wish there was a way to take that away from you. I I wish there was a way to take that burden away. But now you know what to look for in a training partner. That's, That's a valuable lesson to have as you continue your athletic endeavors. But... Get the hell out from under this guy. Don't do it later. Rip the band-aid off. Be direct. Figure out how to do it as safely as possible. If you if you are scared, afraid for yourself, tell somebody. If you're not really that afraid for yourself and you just think that this is going to be uncomfortable, saddle up and just say, I'm going to be uncomfortable for the ten minutes this conversation takes. And then... I'm going to go do something for myself and then take the measures you need to to not interact with this person anymore.
0: Yeah, I think if if, if you're worried, if you're worried about this guy raging out at you, do it in a public setting. Do it with a, a another friend or or some form of uh of backup. Um try to treat it professionally and and don't be afraid to say, I've said my piece, we're done, goodbye, and walk away and not look back. We believe in you. We believe in you, Gary. Yeah,
1: you got this. Uh, and I'll give you this. Um, do yourself a favor, Gary. Uh, sorry, I'm gonna get hello weightlifter right here. Uh, Google a guy named Matt Foreman. You may have already been reading his articles. But he is a coach and a trainer, and he has written a lot about good training partners and how to fire your clients and your partners and how to get away from that. So Matt Foreman, F-O-R-E-M-A-N. Google him. Look for his articles on training partners. There's a lot of encouragement there. And please keep us posted. Uh, I would love to get a follow-up on this to know how this goes. But please take care of yourself. Don't stand for this. You don't need to.
0: No, you don't. All right. All right. Best of luck, Gary. Yeah, we're good. Um, All right. So thank you, folks. That has been uh, this episode of our show. And so to reminder to everyone out there, uh, if you have a relationship problem with a, a loved one, a friend, a coworker, a weightlifting partner – uh, really, anybody, uh, and you want our advice? Uh, you can send your questions to lovehaterelationshippodcast at gmail dot com. We promise we'll read them.
1: You can also tweet us at LHRPod. That's L H R P O D with your questions, and with, and you can follow us there uh, to keep up with our new episodes.
0: Yeah, and, uh, we we we're. As of right now, launching the, the website and the... Uh, we should tell them about the website, Alex.
1: We should. Uh, our website is love, hate, relationship.net. There you can uh, stream our episodes directly, see all the places you can follow us. You can learn a little bit more about the podcast itself or about us as individuals. Uh, you can check out our awesome logo, which we just got back, and subscribe and do all the wonderful podcasty things
0: yeah we're real excited about that uh to follow us personally you can find me on twitter at jovocop cop 2113
1: and i'm a underscore x underscore r u i z on both twitter and instagram thank you again for listening and joining us and please as always tell your enemies